It's time for our camera showdown between the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra and the iPhone 12 Pro. Which Ultra flagship has the Pro chops to up your camera game? We'll find out, but first, here we are at episode number 69, and you think I would be old enough to not find that hilarious. But I'm not, and I hope you're not too. It's the Benefit of a Doubt Podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week, we finally get to do the camera breakdown between the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra and the iPhone 12 Pro. I'll be telling you all about it here while we're showing you over on YouTube. Plus, I have an announcement pertaining to the show that you're not going to want to miss, and we'll get to all of that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. Logitech is a very successful company in a lot of different areas of technology, but Universal Remotes has pretty consistently not been one of them. It's true, I've had a couple of Harmony Remotes, the first one I was supposed to review for Board at Work, but it was so terrible, I did Logitech a favor by not reviewing it. This particular remote was continued itself about a year ago, so I tried a Harmony Express, and that one has been marginally better, but honestly, still not very good. I honestly just use it to control my DVD player since I lost the remote for it. Now, before I get much further, I should mention that I'm cheap, and up until this past Christmas, I didn't have a working TV in my house for the past three years, so what did I need a universal remote for? Long story short, I didn't. Now I have one, and all I can do is switch between the DVD player and the Chromecast, and dear listener, it can't even get that right. So it's no surprise that Logitech is discontinuing all its Harmony remotes as of this month. They will continue to work for as long as customers continue to use them or until we get a new CEO who decides that supporting a discontinued product is stupid. Whichever comes first, I guess. I've never been the target demographic for the Harmony remote system, but for those friends I know who have them, they work great as long as you're willing to put literal hours into setting them up properly and then teaching your family how to use them. Otherwise, they're confusing and easily broken. Not like physically broken, but in terms of functionality, broken. Anyway, sorry Harmony, but the only reason I'm sad to see you go is that there isn't really any kind of replacement out there for you, but maybe that's because the job you were trying to do was too hard in the first place. If you listened to all 80 minutes of our last Beyond a Doubt featuring Mike Hahn, a.k.a. BenderTube OG, you heard us piecing together a Lego project of the Minions from the Despicable Me movies. And if you bought a set for yourself using my link... Thanks! I appreciate it. But anyway, you know he's big into Legos, and you know that I'm slowly coming around to them. And that is why this story is making it into the podcast. That and, well, it was a slow news week, but what else do you want? Anyway, Lego introduced a new Lego set of the NASA Space Shuttle and the Hubble Telescope, and it's 2,354 pieces of awesome. Derek Kessler got one and built it over the weekend, and my dear listener... I want this thing pretty hard. Yes, even though it's $200. Anyway, Ars Technica wanted it too and posted photos of it being built, and yes, it does look amazing. So amazing that I asked for it for Father's Day. Will I get it? You'll have to wait until June to find out, I'm afraid, but I think I smell another speed build on the old YouTube channel. Oh yes, that will be happening. 
The FCC wants to find out just how screwed it is when it comes to broadband speeds in the U.S., so it's developed its own app for you to test your internet speeds and report some data back to the FCC. The idea here is that the FCC wants to get the data firsthand rather than relying on third-party services like Ookla and Netflix. And before we go any further, I should mention that I only just now found out that Netflix has a speed test app? Who knew? Anyway, the hope here is that the data will be the unvarnished truth for the FCC so it can determine the next steps it needs to take in order to make sure that everyone in America has great broadband. Of course, in order to get that data, it will need people to, you know, download and use the app, and that's no small feat. Being written up in The Verge is a good start, but I can't imagine the FCC will be able to upset the mindshare Apple cart that Ookla has. Well, good luck to that, FCC. I will download your app at some point. Maybe. Okay, honestly, I probably won't. But I'm also not your target audience, so I think that kind of is okay. For those of you who took the bet that you wouldn't hear the words real working lightsaber in this newscast, I'm afraid you just lost. Because executives at Disney seem to have a real working lightsaber, and we're starting to figure out how it works. And it's actually so genius and so simple, I'm amazed it took us this long. Now, before I get too far into this, I should point out two things. First, people have seen this in action at Disney's April 8th presentation by Disney Parks chairman Josh DeMauro, who pulled out this thing on stage. It wasn't televised nor streamed, so there are no videos of it, just written accounts. Second, when I say real working lightsaber, I mean lightsaber that extends out of a handle but isn't like one of those collapsible tubes that we already have. What I mean is you pick up the handle, flick a switch, and a three-foot pole extends out of the handle and lights up. It doesn't melt anything or, you know, have any other lightsaber properties, but it's still amazing and cool, and we're just now figuring out how it works. This is easy for me to relate to since I'm the son of a carpenter, but imagine two tape measures that extend out from a tube facing each other so the concave parts curve in towards each other. Now extend an LED strip inside that tube, and that's a really simplified version of how this works. The article in the show notes has a better description, so I'll defer to that, but honestly, it's just so cool, I can't wait to see these live. This week saw the announcement of two events coming up next week. First, on April 20th, I get my second vaccination shot. Oh, that wasn't what was announced. That was just a, you know, a side note. Apple is having an event called Spring Loaded, during which we'll see something Apple. I just got done telling you last week that we don't report on rumors, but if Apple follows this pattern from last year, we'll probably see new MacBooks, new iPads, and more. Maybe we'll finally see Apple's AirTag location beacons, which have been rumored for, well, longer than this podcast has been around, and actually the podcast that I was on before this has been around. Also the following week, Samsung announced another unpacked event. For those of you keeping score, that's three unpacked events in just four months. Honestly, Samsung, you should be unpacked by now. There's nothing left to unpack, so let's just pack it up and I'll... I see what you did there. Okay, now I've gone and done it. Okay, Samsung, you can unpack one more time, but this has to be it until, I don't know, at least June, okay? Okay. 
Microsoft released a refresh to its line of Surface laptops with the Surface Laptop 4, and no, Microsoft is not returning my calls. The new laptops come in both 13 and 15 inch varieties. Gone this year is the Alcantara padding on the wrist rest that has been a signature for Surface laptops for quite some time now. The fabric always made for a really unique look and feel, and now that look and feel is aluminum, which is kind of... Yeah. Personally, I thought the Alcantara was a great look, but I could see that getting dirty really easily. The new laptop comes in Intel and AMD flavors, which is nice. I have an AMD laptop that I'm testing right now, and I have to say, so far, not bad. The 13-inch Surface laptop starts at $9.99, and the 15-inch version starts at $11.99. Microsoft is keeping the 3x2 aspect ratio of the 2256x1504 resolution monitor on the 13-inch model, and 2496x1664 resolution on the 15-incher. CNET calls this a modest update over previous generations, and I have to agree. Really, the big news here is the removal of the Alcantara, and when that's the biggest news about your laptop refresh, that I has less fur? Well, I'd say that's not really an awesome marketing message, but it does keep the Surface Laptop up to present-day standards, so we'll call it a win. And Microsoft wasn't the only one to refresh its products. TCL hit the stage this week to introduce three new phones. We got the TCL 20L, the TCL 20L Plus, and the TCL 20 Pro 5G. These are successors to last year's TCL 10 Pro and 10L, with a third phone thrown in there for good measure. The L phones are basically the same, though there are some differences in the internals, like the camera modules and the RAM. The 20 Pro adds 5G, a 48 megapixel main sensor, now with optical image stabilization, and a Snapdragon 750G processor. The main addition here is the 5G support, which will carry sub-6 bands. The improved camera and 5G could potentially make this phone worth paying attention to this year. The pricing is on the high side at 549 euro, but if TCL follows the usual pattern of replacing the euro sign with the dollar sign, $549 isn't bad considering the TCL 10 Pro launched at 450 last year. But the big news of the day was TCL rolling out another foldable concept that is called the Fold and Roll which is a phone that unfolds into a tablet with an outside-facing screen, and then the phone features a rollable display that extends the screen even further, making this very close to a true tablet form factor. Unfortunately, TCL only has a video to show you how it would work, and TCL already announced that the foldable phone that's coming this year is not the Fold and Roll, which is honestly a little disappointing. Someone on Twitter, I don't recall who, mentioned that it's about time for TCL to put up or shut up, like produce a foldable that's actually for sale and quit rolling out these crazy concepts that may or may not ever see the light of day. And to a point, I agree. I think we're past the point of saying, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? And instead asked, isn't it great that we did this? And speaking of, isn't it great that we did this? I need to mention that TCL announced three phones, a rolling foldable concept, and even took 45 seconds to talk about the color of its phone, <coughs> Samsung, and still ended the presentation in 30 minutes flat. By far, my favorite presentation of the year, and other OEMs could learn a thing or two about that. Sony also introduced new hardware with the next generations of the Xperia phones, the Xperia 1 Mark III and the Xperia 5 Mark III. 
Both of these phones have some killer specs, but the One Mark III takes the crown as expected. Sony is touting the world's first 4K 120Hz screen, which is neat, but Sony is also not only bringing a periscope camera lens, but a dual fixed focus lens. What that means is the lens inside the periscope lens moves and can adjust the focal length of the lenses to between 75 millimeters and 105 millimeter focal lengths. That probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, or maybe it does if you're a camera geek, but considering the main sensor has a focal length of 24 millimeters, the movable lens amounts to basically a 3x and somewhere around 4x magnification. Is it 10x? No, but honestly, the lenses in the periscope camera move, people. Sony's also touting AI-driven zoom that is supposed to be amazeballs, and you know how much I love zoom, so that will be something to play with. Two notes here. This year, Sony is building in a basic mode into its super amazing camera app, which gives you automatic function, in addition to the super fancy manual modes. But it's leaving out that second camera app that last year's phone had. Everything is going to be done in Sony's camera app, including auto or air quotes basic mode. And frankly, it's about time. The other note here is that Sony did not release pricing, which is always cause for concern. But later in the week, we got a report from Sony's Russian website that the suggested price will be 99,990 rubles, which is the equivalent to around 1,300 worthless American dollars. And if that's the case, that would be lower than Cliff and I expected. We were setting the over-under at around 1500 because there is some cool tech going on here. Oh, and Sony likes to overprice their phones, but more the first thing than the second thing. Anyway, we'll wait to see when the release date is and what U.S. pricing will be and whether or not I'll get my hands on one. Meantime, we have enough toys to play with for a while. Last week, we talked about Spotify cutting into Apple Podcasts turf, and this week we have another contender entering the arena. Google Podcasts finally surpassed 100 million installs this past week. PocketCast remains my go-to podcast player, and indeed, it seems to be my audience's player of choice as well, so we're all a happy PocketCast family, which is nice. PocketCast has actually gotten a lot better at syncing up your podcast to the point where when my wife borrowed my iPhone for a recent trip and was using it to listen to podcasts, I had to switch to Google Podcasts so we didn't screw each other up. But this story is about Google Podcasts, so let's move back over to that subject. Google Podcasts works just fine, though... Sometimes the UI trips me up a little bit. All the same, no other dedicated podcast app has anywhere near 100 million downloads in the Google Play Store. Android Police points out that Spotify and Audible both have sizable audiences, but there's no way to really tell how many people downloaded those apps specifically for podcasts. So congratulations to Google Podcasts, and congratulations to Podcasts Everywhere. More people on the platform is a good thing. And by the way, if you wanted to recommend my podcast to your friends that they could listen to on Google Podcasts, well, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, and hey, you'd have my thanks. And finally, Petapixel has an amazing video of the moon shot with a modular Leica lens. Now, the video is actually from 2016, but it was featured this week. It was actually shot in 2015 by a photographer named Marcus Stark. But dear listener... Click the link in the show notes and go watch this four-minute masterpiece that shows you the perspective of the moon from about one kilometer off of its surface. I mean, it seriously looks like a Google Earth satellite view, except closer. And by the way, it was shot from Earth. 
the camera flies all around the moon, zooming in and out, and you can see things in incredible detail. It's definitely some hardcore space nerd camera porn, and if that sounds like a lot of caveats, well, I fit into all of them. So go check it out in the show notes and prepare to be amazed. So, it's announcement time, and dear listener, I have some good news and bad news for you. The good news is, is that I've just been offered a full-time freelance gig by the fine folks that run LifeWire.com. It's a 40 hours per week gig, and it's a pretty decent salary. Now, you all know that this podcast is in the black, but it does not pay the bills. That's what my freelancing does. Well, now my freelancing will pay the bills with much more regularity, which is great. And as a result, I'm going to be cutting back a lot at Android Central and Digital Trends. And with all due respect to the awesome people at LifeWire, I honestly expected one of the other two to turn into a full-time job sooner. But hey, I'm not complaining. Now, for the bad news, I'm going to start this gig on May 3rd, and I'm very excited about the new job. But there's going to be onboarding for me, learning the ropes and such. And to be frank, I haven't worked a 40-hour-per-week job since 2016. So there's going to be an adjustment period, you could say. And as a result, I'm going to put the podcast, this podcast, on hiatus just for the month of May while I settle in and get my bearings at my new job. I'm going to spend a month learning the new job, and I really can't afford to take focus away from that. I've already paused my Patreon, so my lovely Patreon patrons will not be charged this coming month. I believe new patrons will be charged if I read the pause help documents correctly, so if my pausing the podcast has inspired you to contribute to my financial future, well, I'm flattered and frankly a little confused. The Beyond a Doubt show will still happen in May, but it may be paused in June because that's just kind of how this whole timing thing works. We will still have a Doubting Thomas monthly recap in both April and May because I can afford a couple of hours to chat with Cliff. That's not a problem at all. Now, come June, the show will be back. The tricky part is, going forward, I'm not going to have nearly the time I've had to devote to this podcast. On the face of it, That means I may not necessarily have a top story or a tech yeah every single week. I'm still going to do the news, so some weeks you might get a 40-minute show. Some weeks you may get a 15-minute show. It's kind of how this thing is going to work out. Now, it may turn out that this new gig doesn't take nearly as much time as I think, and if that's the case, we can get back to a more normal schedule. But until then... That's kind of what's up. I want to assure you that the podcast is only getting paused so that I can focus on not screwing up this new job. After that, I'm going to be back every week with guests and interviews and reviews and news and all the ews that you've been getting thus far. The podcast may get a little shorter, but that just means it's going to be a quicker listen for you. And hey, that means you can get onto other podcasts, and that's cool. And by the way, if you want me to give up on this new gig and just focus on the podcast... Benefit of slash support. Join the Patreon. Get a friend to listen. It's still my goal to one day live off of this podcast alone. That would be amazing. And if it happens, it's only going to be because of all of you amazing folks who tune in every week. I love that, and I love you for it. It's platonic love, but, you know, it's still love. Anyway, we still have two shows coming up on April 24th and May the 2nd. Then we take a little time off until the 6th of June, and I'll see you then. But for now, let's get back to the show.
and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for the amazing, epic, knockdown, blowout, ruffle, tuffle, scrappy, heavyweight bout between arguably the two leading smartphone cameras, the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra and the iPhone 12 Pro. And no, I'm not going to keep talking like that. Fasten your seatbelts because this is going to be quite a ride. And now that I've completely and totally 100% unequivocally oversold this segment, let's dive in. Both cameras are really, really good. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. You're getting a full look here. But since it's been almost three months since I reviewed both of these phones, there's been a lot of buildup, and I just kind of wanted to acknowledge that. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Comparing two cameras like the Galaxy S21 Ultra and the iPhone 12 Pro is a challenge because honestly, they're both just really good. So it really comes down to just nitpicking, which isn't fun for anyone. What I will say is that there are two areas, well, one and a half, where one camera is demonstrably better than the other. And that's going to come at the end because I don't want you to turn this off after the first minute. And that's Marketing 101. To run this test, I took a series of photos and videos with both cameras in auto mode. And when you get to this level of camera, it's a given that you can make any photo look any way you want if you go into pro mode and you know how to use pro mode or if you capture photos in raw files and edit them in Lightroom later on. But not every shot has to be the one where you stop, take out your phone, fiddle with the aperture and the exposure and oh the ISO is a little bit too high and then you have to adjust the focus and yada 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 whatever. Sometimes, in fact I'd argue most of the time, you just want to whip out your phone and grab a shot. Or at least that's what I want to do and it's my podcast so yeah 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 yeah. Now, right off the bat, when there's good light, you're going to notice that Samsung photos are generally a little bit lighter than iPhone photos. And that's not anything new. But while iPhones like to keep photos more, quote, realistic, you can often lose a lot of details in darker subjects. Similarly, when there's a strong backlight, Samsung gives you a little bit more detail in the foreground, while the iPhone loses that detail in the foreground darkness and the backlight. Samsung tends to give a better natural bokeh around subjects, while the background on the iPhone actually remains pretty sharp. Now, both phones do very well in keeping color consistency when transferring from one lens to the other. The difference here is that the 10x zoom lens of the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra has a much smaller aperture, so it tends to get a lot darker. And speaking of 10x zoom, just... Holy crap, dude. Okay, now, spoiler alert, zoom is going to be a significant portion of this conversation. You don't really notice the color difference between the 3x zoom and the 10x zoom too much when there's bright sunlight everywhere, but at night, it's a very, very stark difference. Speaking of dark photos, that's a lot of our conversation as well. The iPhone does really well in darkness, maintaining a wider depth of field, meaning photos will often be sharper, though definitely darker, with less detail in the shadows. Samsung, on the other hand, brightens up photos a bit and stays focused on the subject nicely, but loses focus on other objects around the subject very easily. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course, because, you know, of course there are. There's only so much that glass and sensors can actually do. The rest is up to software processing, and I think Samsung has done more and better work in this area. It's nothing against the iPhone, surely. Indeed, there are some cases when the iPhone clearly outshines the Samsung. Low-light photos are really, 
really hard, and even in an age when you have two cameras that stand so decisively above the rest of the field, except for possibly Huawei, but I've never tested a Huawei phone myself, so I can't speak to that. Anyway, even those two decisive phones struggle in this area of low-light photography, but man, oh man, they are so much better than they used to be. It's actually really exciting. And don't forget, I've still got the OnePlus 9 Pro and the Xperia Mark III phones to play with this year. So this is not the end of the conversation. Not by a long shot. Selfies and portrait modes are also very good on these phones. Action shots are possible, but as with most phones, auto is not the place to try to grab these shots. Those will be best shot in manual mode or burst mode because phones are trying to suck in as much light as possible in auto mode, so motion really screws things up. Moving on to video, when you're walking along with the phone in front of you, the iPhone generally does a better job with smoothing out the footage and giving you a nice, smooth walk and talk and filtering out things like wind noise. On the literal flip side, the walk and talk test for the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra looks like you're running the camera on a track. It is damn smooth. And if you're a vlogger, this is no contest. As for exposure, the iPhone is a bit more on the dramatic side. When you move from a dark area into a lighter area, there's a pretty big shift from one end of the spectrum to the other. Samsung seems to smooth things out a little more to make the transition a little less stark. Overall, there's very little complaint about on either phone from the video end. In terms of smoothing and panning, I'd give a slight edge to the iPhone, whereas the Ultra does a better job with colors and exposure. There's no clear winner here, but the good news is that also means that there's no clear loser either. And yes, I like it here on the fence just fine. Thank you very much. But there is one area, well, one and a half areas where the Ultra pants the iPhone and takes its lunch money, and that is in Zoom. I mean, people, it's not even close. The iPhone has an ultra-wide sensor, a main sensor, and a 2x telephoto sensor. The Galaxy Ultra has an ultra-wide main, 3x, and 10x optical zoom sensors. Plus, Samsung's AI gets very decent 30x hybrid zoom. Now, 100x zoom, still pretty much a gimmick for sure, except when it comes to moonshots. When you consider the moonshots that I have grabbed by hand, it's really remarkable. We talked a few weeks back about that piece from Input Mag that debunked the software trickery suspected of Samsung, and seeing these shots that I got, I can totally understand why there was so much speculation. Getting back to zoom and hybrid zoom, that is not a gimmick. Now, you definitely won't grab a precious photo of things at 100x, but 30x? you could probably get away with it. The iPhone has really good optical zoom at 2x, which is nice, but when you look at how much closer the Samsung Galaxy Ultra can get you, not only is it not in the same ballpark, it's barely even the same game. Take, for example, my daughter's gymnastic competitions. When you see the difference between how close you can get with an iPhone and how close you can get with the Ultra, it's laughable, and that's really what it boils down to. If you're a parent, this is an absolute no-brainer. It's not like you can walk out onto the floor or up onto the stage to take photos or videos, but with the S21 Ultra, you basically can, assuming that we ever go up on stage or out onto the floor again. Adding zoom to the iPhone is nice, and it is valuable, but all other things being equal, the zoom the Ultra is capable of is not only a feature, it's a slam dunk. Not that this iPhone is bad, far from it. In many ways, the iPhone meets or exceeds what the S21 is capable of. But in one area, it's no contest. And you might be thinking, well, sure, if I need to zoom in, well, how often do I need to do that? And that's a fair point. 
And if you don't have kids, probably not nearly as often. But this is simply a case of better to have it and not need it. And the fact is that the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra has it and nobody else, iPhone, OnePlus, Motorola, nobody else has it. And I have no doubt that they will have it someday, but today, Samsung has it in spades, which is why I hesitate to declare a air quotes winner here, but I definitely have to give the nod to the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I would like to not thank Samsung and Apple for not sending me review units of the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra and the iPhone 12 Pro. Yes, I had to buy them, but yes, they were tax deductible, so I'm okay with it. I would like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I would like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.